welcome to Pathways to Power podcast episode 2, Why Localization Matters. I'm Terry Gibson and I've been linking up with people in twos and threes on Skype and in phone calls. Conversations have spanned continents, linking people working at the front line of development and humanitarian response with others who draw alongside them. Episode 1 concluded that localization needs to be more than a buzzword. Its relevance in practice depends on engaging with grassroots situations which it's intended to improve. This episode asks why all of this matters. Is localization just a feeding frenzy about resources and power? Is it about shifting these from one layer of organizations to another? A kind of tug of war between different organizations, large and small, all arguing for their unique relevance. Within the echo chamber of aid industry conferences, debates and discussions, it can sometimes seem like that. To find out more about why and how localisation matters, it's worth stepping right out of the echo chamber to hear about aid in action, response and development activities in villages, towns and cities across the world. Does localisation help make these activities more effective? Let's listen to people working with local communities far from the conference halls of Geneva and Washington. Particularly on this project, we have had reasons to to change certain things because of that place of listening, you know, listening to the people. Uh, This is what we intend to do. But how do you think we can do it better? So... uh, most most times you don't have those kind of instances where agencies or organizations do take time to do listening. There is that uh, uh, that quick instant we want to see instant result. But I've seen us go back and forth, back and forth, just because we want to ensure the sustainability of this project even beyond the funding. The communities, as a result of some of the things we've done, the listening, the willingness to allow them to participate. They've come up with their engineer to add more value to the project. Oscar, working in Jos, Nigeria, sees the importance of tapping in to community energy insights and capacity as the basis for sustainable development. Kailash, talking about disaster response in Nepal, also thinks that this has to start with the communities themselves. I mean, the response mechanism is already localized. I mean, the first responder is always the next neighbor. We know that. That has been working in Nepal for centuries. So what exactly, what sort of localization are we talking about? What we need to talk now, what needs to be transformed is the structural aid mechanism, mechanism of recognizing uh, indigenous response system, the, the mechanism of linking local responders with the broader and global resource holders. Shifting away from treating communities as passive recipients of aid can unlock tremendous potential for change. This is Moyo, who works in rural Zimbabwe. We, we have seen communities, you know, having what you call um, economic independence, economic power where they decide um, to say, uh, this is what we want, as long as, because they've got the, the, the resources, they are able to do things on their own, they cannot be manipulated by probably uh, the government officials, the politicians. As long as people have got the, they are united, they've got the resources, 
then they become more powerful and they, they, are, they, they are able to influence even the, the changes, the way of doing things uh, in the local government as well as up to, up to national level. Those examples all make the case for community-led development and few are going to argue with that. But what many would say is how can local level activities at such a small scale affect the root causes that lead to the struggles and the vulnerability of many communities? Doesn't that need larger scale action by bigger organisations? Well, Moyo, in that last clip, hinted that maybe community action can reach wider. He mentioned local government and even national government. Sawa works in central Pakistan, leading a small NGO. And he contrasts their earlier work, which was project-based, with mobilising people to address root causes with really significant results. By the way, he compares Faisalabad with Manchester because he knows where I live. We would provide a lot of service delivery to the communities. But gradually we moved to accountability side because there are a number of laws which are not being implemented and, and the governance is very poor. There is a lot of corruption. So the best way is, is we decided that we should organize people and find out unorganized labor around labor rights. We targeted the minimum wage rates which are announced by government each financial year. They have not been implemented in the past. So we uh, we assisted and facilitated the workers to stand up and demand for the minimum wage rates implementation. So in Faisalabad, which is considered Manchester of Pakistan, <laughs> uh, uh, the largest, third largest city in uh, as far as the garment and textile industry is concerned, the, the, the gap between minimum wage and the actual payment uh, is only now 10 to 12 percent, while in the rest of Pakistan, the gap is 20 to 22 percent. So, in a, a large number of families who are now getting uh, uh, better wages, the poverty has reduced, and at least 0.6 million people have benefited from that. And we would never be able to help the marginalized people at that level if we would have working uh, through a traditional NGO model. Of course, no donor is giving money for that kind of activism and it is working much better than before. Sawa has seen real economic change and progress rooted in citizens claiming their rights rather than a kind of project-based or service delivery model. The world's growing megacities present a particular challenge, and that's no more apparent than in the informal sectors of those cities, areas where people live in slums often without land rights or registration. And this accounts for over a billion people worldwide. Manu works in East Delhi, and he says that the solutions lie in activities like institution building. You call them the informal sector, and rightly so. These are largely people who have, in our case, people who have moved from rural areas into urban areas. They are small groups of people living in urban slums. They don't have access to rights. They don't have a registered ID. And because they don't have these formal mechanisms to be included, they are not able to get the benefits. And uh, so 
the way to work with these kind of communities is to also find informal ways of community building of uh, enabling them to find their rights just like what sarvar said now the problem is that and uh you know it was mentioned before that the current model of aid that the ingos and the international system brings does not have the scope of institutional building for example or for informal ways of engagement with the most marginalized because there is no immediate quantifiable change that can one can you know record as output of the investment so my problem here is then how do i make a proposal uh, for <laughs> investing my time into these kind of efforts which are so much necessary in bringing them mainstream in east delhi where manu works institution building means often creating institutions such as local community organizations where none existed it means connecting them up with local government sometimes challenging local government and all of this is to do with creating local cohesiveness and enabling people to press for the changes that are needed this kind of work isn't a quick fix which is why it's difficult to attract support for it Melvin supports organizations working in areas like Kibera slum in Nairobi the largest urban slum in Africa and he also recognizes the importance of institution building I'll say out of the outlay the capital outlay that we yeah. give communities at least 55% goes to institutional capacity and institutional development it's only 45 that goes to the core grants and and it it's it, it's an inverted funnel we'll start that way then as we go along then the grants money become more and more once they they able to receive as i said we work with pretty grassroots organizations and you do not want to to pour a lot of money because that becomes already a distraction in itself i believe that uh, it's much more important to engage with people without talking about money there is a civil society which is being ignored by ngo sector which is being ignored by political leadership as well so i think there there is a need to spend some time so that coalitions of marginalized people could be built up at the district levels and then you you can form a bigger coalition at the national or subnational level melvin and then sawa have taken us a long way from short term project responses and an emphasis on money clearly long term sustainable work is important as is building institutions and services that match the needs of the local context an obvious question is how can this vision for locally driven development institution building sustainable change be supported by other sectors of the aid industry to use another buzzword how can it be empowered it's about unleashing their power so it's about kicking off from a very initial assumption that people already have power in themselves it's just that they haven't been awarded the right mechanisms or they haven't been put in the right situation to unleash it and to really start exercising it i like rossio's idea that it's not about empowering people but helping to unleash their power the power they have already she works with accountable now who help INGOs work out how they can be more responsive to local organizations and local communities 
And that's the question we're going to ask in the next episode of this podcast series. If local organisations and local communities have the potential to play a key role in addressing both development and disaster challenges, then what's involved in unleashing that power? And how can other elements of the aid industry help? You'll find the other episodes and much more information, including details on all the contributors, by googling Global Fund for Community Foundations, Pathways to Power, where you're also very welcome to contribute your own comments and join in the conversations. Finally, my thanks go to the contributors to this episode, Oscar, Moyo, Kailash, Sawa, Manu, Melvin and Rossio. Thank you.